Chapter 16, The Goat Messiah Before going further into that astounding new world Yeshua leads his people into after the Day of Atonement, we need to investigate that astonishing ceremony which literally changes everything, at least for Christianity. That day, of course, is the ceremony of atonement, which means to have our sins covered or atoned for, and or to be at one with our Creator. But to be at one, we must be humble and contrite, according to Isaiah 57:15. That's the core of the day of hum- atonement, humility. That said, and much to the consternation of Christianity, the Jews, for the most part, refuse to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Considering the Jews are supposedly much more connected to the writings of the prophets and the Torah than Christianity, how is it the Jews failed to see the over 60 Old Testament prophecies the Christians claim clearly announced Jesus as the coming Messiah. What a conundrum. Maybe we can understand the Jews' failure to see or accept those 60-some passages, considering we nowhere find the name Jesus in the Old Testament. That's quite an interesting fact, but a fact nonetheless. Considering the fair amount of historic and biblical evidence of a first-century Messiah, except for the name, Christians do have a strong case a Messiah did come. In fact, putting the Old and New Testaments together, we find the Jews and Christians are both right and wrong. When the feasts such as the Passover are brought into the picture, all doubts of a first-century Hebrew Messiah, which is not Jesus, having come is erased, while at the same time, The Torah tells us the Messiah the Jews are expecting is still coming. That truth is shown in the atonement ceremony. What Christianity fails to understand or see is the big picture, which is the result of the rejection of Yahweh's feasts. The big twist is what Yeshua, that is the Hebrew Messiah, did in the first century, although extremely important, has little to do with what he does in the fall harvest season. Again, in the spring harvest, he shed his blood for the firstborn, that is, of Israel only. He's Israel's high priest, and the spring harvest of Israelites are his priesthood. The rest of Israel and the world are still in need of atoning. Again, the fall feast season announced by Mr. Trump's miraculous election with the blast of 300 trumpets initiated the fall feast of trumpets in real time. And adding additional confirmation to that miracle wasn't even greater. The impossible Revelation 12 sign of the woman, which was literally seen during the actual Feast of Trumpets in September 2017. Those miraculous events confirm we are now in the countdown to the Ceremony of Atonement. Atonement in the physical rehearsals was celebrated 10 days after Trumpets, which again equals 10 years in literal fulfillment. Remember, the etymology of atonement is to be at one or to walk with the Creator and or His Son Yeshua, which Isaiah 57 tells us is only possible with a humble spirit and those of a contrite heart. But how is that humbling to occur? With that question in mind, the ten years between trumpets and atonement, with the last three and one half being the worst, are the humbling years Yahweh is utilizing to bring the world to their knees, to be at one with Him. Immediately after that three and one half years of horrifying tribulation, Yeshua will have returned due to the fact he's the high priest who personally conducts the atonement goat ceremony. We find that strange goat ceremony in Leviticus 16, 5 through 10, 
where the high priest, now Yeshua in literal time, selects two hairy adult male goats. Kids, by the way, is a mistranslation. One of the goats called Azazel, which is not a scapegoat considering Azazel is quite guilty, gets the sins of the world or the Gentiles placed on its head. The book of Enoch tells us Azazel was one of the 200 watchers that descended upon Mount Hermon and taught humanity all manner of evils and possibly the art of war. Whatever the reason Azazel received the brunt of the blame for the deeds of those rogue watchers shows he obviously committed the greater transgressions. As noted before, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a figure of speech describing the 200 watchers, of which Azazel was one. In fact, Ezekiel 31 relates a heated competition between the trees, that is the watchers or angels in the Garden of Eden, with one being the greatest and the envy of the others. Of those, Genesis 3 tells us the dragon that launched the battle against Yahweh and his angels and lost was the craftiest of those watchers and the one that deceived Eve. And after having its trading empire and home planet Mars destroyed, it had only raging reven revenge boiling in its veins when we find it skulking in the garden. But many of the other watchers, i.e. trees, were not so full of vengeance and hatred, some with even with benevolent motives. Remember, as discussed in an earlier chapter, the tree or trees of the knowledge of good and evil was just that, a mix of good and evil. It's that mix that makes seeing the deception so difficult and the deceit so easy to accomplish. Getting back to the physical atonement ceremony, we find the Azazel goat picturing the watcher that committed or taught the greatest of the evils driven into the bottomless pit noted in Revelation 9. And as instructed in Enoch, Oh, as instructed. In fact, we can be fairly certain the original name of the king of the bottomless pit uh, is none, none other than Azazel. He is called Abaddon in Revelation, which means ruling father, but that's not his actual name. What happens with Azazel is quite interesting, but it's the second goat that's a bit shocking. The second goat was slaughtered or sheds its blood to pay or atone for the sins of Israel. Yes, that's right, and no, the Lamb Yeshua did not die for the sins of all Israel. And he certainly did not die for the sins of the world, i.e. the Gentiles. The Lamb shed his blood only for the firstborn, that is the priesthood of Israel. As noted earlier, Yeshua returned to receive his priesthood harvest in the first century, who are apparently the 144,000 standing before the throne of Yahweh in heaven in Revelation 7, 4, and 15. Again, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And considering everyone is dying, modern Israel's sins have obviously not been paid or atoned for. With that in mind, and the advent of the fall harvest season in real time, including the resurrection of the whole house of Israel in Ezekiel 37, someone obviously has to shed blood to pay for their sins before they are raised to eternal life. The one pictured by this goat. And, as we will see shortly, we have not been left in the dark as to just who this other goat is. Raising animals on the farm, I'm quite familiar with the differences between a lamb and a full-grown male goat, like the atonement goats. <clears throat> Lambs, symbolic of the first century Messiah Yeshua, are gentle and harmless, while goats, on the other hand, are very independent and have horns, of course, which they love to use. In fact, the difference in power between a full-grown male goat and a lamb is probably 50 times. 
Adding to that, goats, especially the male ones, love the high and mostly inaccessible places. <clears throat> Considering the sacrifice of this goat is in the very near future, and goats are powerful and love to dominate the high places, it's logical this goat is already a major figure on the world scene, that is, in some way. And considering goats love to fight and or champion for, or for its people, we can rest assured this goat's already near. Ironically, there is someone fitting the goat picture to a T, a man who has climbed to one of the highest positions in the world, who is also extremely independent and never passes up a good fight. Plus, he stood up as a champion for his people, that is, the Western or modern Israelite nations, especially the United States and Israel, that is, the Jews. If you haven't guessed to whom I'm referring, it's none other than the one who ushered in the Feast of Trumpets, the trumpet king himself. But as logically as he fits the goat image, there is a problem. Remember, when we examine the atonement ceremony, we see both those atonement goats are identical. And considering the fact one of them is Azazel, a very powerful angel watcher, doesn't it demand the other goat that sheds its blood for the sins of Israel be a prominent and powerful angel as well? Well, of course it does. That said, there is another perfectly qualified figure fitting the criteria. Personally, I have no doubt this angel is the one working with or handling Donald Trump as his spirit guide. In assembling Exodus 19, Daniel 7, Daniel 12, and Revelation 12, the identity of this angel represented by the second goat which sheds its blood for Israel is clearly revealed. We can be sure it's the same angel that led the Israelites out of Egypt and will lead the Revelation 12 woman to her place of safety. An eagle. Before going there, let's look at a prophecy in Hosea 6, where Hosea was prophesying to Israel. Come and let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Obviously, this prophecy was for a very future time from when it was given, that is, in 720 BCE. And at a glance, it may not look like anything affecting us, but there are volumes of understanding in those scriptures. That said, the next few paragraphs will bring us up to speed. It begins with, the ancient, with ancient Israel, except Jerusalem, being conquered by the Assyrian king Enemasser shortly after that prophecy, about 720 BCE, which fulfills the prophecy of being torn and stricken. Then about 200 years later, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Assyrians, freeing the Israelite slaves, allowing them to migrate west over the Caucasus Mountains to become known as the Caucasians to this day. Eventually, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, who in turn were conquered by Alexander the Mede, or Greek. And after a couple of hundred years, about 150 BCE, the Romans rose up to subdue the Greeks by 50 BCE. The Roman Empire then ruled the known world until the late 4th century CE. During that time, the Israelite tribes, the Franks, the Germanics, the Vikings, Spanish, Brits, etc., were subjects of Rome until they finally rose up and brought down Rome about 495 CE. With the demise of the Roman Empire, the modern Israelite tribes were free to establish their own western kingdoms. After founding their territories, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Brits began vying for position to be the next world ruling power. Obviously, the United Kingdom of Britain came out on top, bragging how the sun never set on their empire. But something else was happening before they all began fighting each other. 
What was happening was the literal fulfillment of the first half of the Hosea 6 prophecy, the reviving or the renaissance of the northern tribes of Israel in the 13th century. They also translated the Bible into the common man's language, which is English, fulfilling another part of that prophecy, that is, returning to Yahweh. To facilitate that, they invented the printing press, providing the modern nations of Israel access to the Torah scriptures. <clears throat> this brings us to a connecting prophecy found in Daniel 7, speaking of four beast kingdoms to arise after the fall of the Roman Empire. Daniel 7 tells us the next kingdom to arise after Rome would be a lion with eagle's wings. Again, it's an obvious fact of history, the first world ruling empire to arise following the demise of the Roman Empire was the British Empire, the first truly world ruling kingdom, where they bragged the sun never set on the British Empire. And obviously, England's angelic watcher is a lion, considering the abundance of lion statues all over Britain, such as in Trafalgar Square, London. On top of that, there are lions on virtually every family crest. The eagle is also prominent, but not nearly so as the lion. The prophecy goes on to show the eagle's wings would be plucked off the lion, which is exactly what happened with the colonizing of North America. It's quite obvious the U.S.'s angelic prince is an eagle, considering it's on our money and virtually everywhere we look. There can be no doubt the United States is those eagle wings plucked off the British lion. Interestingly, if one digs a little further, we find Britain never completely cut the umbilical cord and is still very much involved with the operations of the U.S., with that in mind, the second end-time kingdom to arise after the lion and its plucked eagle's wings is a bear, <clears throat> which we investigate in an upcoming chapter. But for now, the prophecy says the bear is raised up on one side, a detail not yet understood, with three ribs in its mouth. But obviously, the three ribs depict the demise of a three-part kingdom that preceded it, which means the kingdom of the lion and eagle had a third part. The only logical conclusion upon which to arrive is that third rib is the modern nation of the Jews, called Israel. After all, it was Britain, Lord Balfour, and the U.S., Harry Truman, that created the modern nation of the Jews, Judah, after World War II. All that seems quite clear, save for one small detail. Just before the bear destroys the three-part kingdom, we're told the eagle's wings were lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given it. Again, just before the demise of this three-part lion-eagle kingdom by the bear, we find the one of the most bizarre prophecies in the Bible, where the eagle, the angelic prince of the United States, is stood up on two feet like a man and a man's heart given it. Of course, the eagle's wings standing up on two feet like a man may simply be a way of showing the eagle takes a man like Donald Trump and uses him as his physical avatar. When Jacob passed out blessings to his sons in Genesis 49, he also assigned them angelic princes, that is, animals, commonly known as guardian angels or spirit guides. For instance, the Jews were given the lion, while the eagle was assigned to guide and protect the whole house of Israel. <clears throat> One of the proofs of that is Yahweh's telling Israel he brought them out of Egypt on eagle's wings. Obviously, they did not ride on the back of a great eagle, but walked being led by a man, Moses. But an eagle was still clearly involved. 
No doubt that eagle manifested itself as the cloud that shaded them by day and the pillar of fire that warmed them in the cold desert nights. Remember, angels are called shinin, that is shapeshifters in scripture. Exodus 19 also calls that eagle the angel of Yahweh, while other scriptures make it clear the angel of Yahweh is also Michael, the archangel. As a little aside, the reason the eagle was with the Lion of Judah in the British Isles was because Britain was the first modern nation to have a fair sprinkling of all the Israelite tribes. In fact, the British flag is called the Union Jack, which means the uniting of Jacob. The United States, although primarily Ephraim, is the most recent conglomerate or melting pot of all the tribes of Israel, even Jews. In fact, it wasn't until 2019 the modern nation called Israel, that is Judah really, had more Jews living than the United States. Again, that's no doubt the reason the eagle is here. We are the world's greatest assemblage of all the tribes. Moving on, we find chapters like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and others showing the connection between the angelic prince of a nation and the physical king as if they were one and the same, like a puppet and puppet master. In those chapters, Yahweh primarily blamed the spirit king or angel for the evils and problems of the physical king and or his city. Of course, the good would primarily be attributed to a nation's watcher angel as well. That said, I think we can safely say who or what or who is empowering Mr. Trump that is for good from the spirit realm is the eagle, just as the angelic king of Tyre was was the dragon empowered the physical ruler of that nation for evil. It seems fairly clear the eagle that's lifted up on two feet like a man and given a man's heart is also the one that led ancient Israel out of Egypt who, and who takes the Revelation 12 woman to safety. That said, Daniel 12 makes it quite clear who the one who stands up that is like a man is definitely Michael, the archangel. Let's read it. At that time, this is a a tribulation scripture, Michael shall stand up, again that's the eagle's wings of Daniel 7, the great angelic prince who stands watch over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, i.e. tribulation. And at that time your people shall be delivered, that is by the eagle Michael, everyone found written in the book. Again, this scripture removes all doubt who the eagle actually is. During that three-and-one-half-year protection period that Michael leads the woman into, it's a good bet Yeshua will also be there considering he has to be here for the atonement goat ceremony, unless, of course, it's performed in heaven, which is a very good possibility. But he certainly will be here after atonement to personally lead his people into the new promised land. But before atonement and during that tribulation, Revelation 9 tells us the bottomless pit is opened, releasing the 200 watchers, including the king of the pit, Azazel. Again, Revelation 9.11 calls him Abaddon, that is meaning ruling father. And would that be of Cain? We'll talk more about that later. After the tribulation at atonement, Yeshua the high priest grabs a hold of Azazel, places upon his head the sins of the Gentile world, and then throws him back into the pit, 
along with the dragon. That's Revelation 20. That is until the end of the millennium when they are released one last time. As to the angel the second goat represents, the scriptures strongly suggest it is none other than Michael, a powerful angel, that is the angel of Yahweh, like Azazel, but righteous. And considering the eagle has always been the angelic champion of the whole house of Israel, who more perfect be the other goat who sheds its blood for them? At this point and leading into the next chapter, Yeshua reestablishes the Garden of Eden on earth into which he leads his modern people Israel, which means the great eagle is no longer needed to be the angelic watcher over Israel. That makes Michael the perfect candidate to be the second goat Messiah. But before moving on to Eden, a seemingly minor issue should be addressed. As pointed out before, the Hebrew Messiah Yeshua shed his blood solely for the firstborn of Israel, that is his priesthood. And the second goat angel, Michael the eagle, apparently sheds his blood for the sins of the balance of Israel. But who saves the Gentile people? That enigma puzzled me for many years until while the answer was right in front of me. Again, many of the most difficult questions and truths are hidden in plain sight. But it wasn't until compiling this Goat Messiah chapter that truth became obvious. To explain, if the righteous watcher sheds its blood for the sins of the balance of Israel, doesn't that make Azazel the literal Messiah for the Gentiles, i.e. the non-Israelite world? I think it's quite obvious. But there's more. Revelation 19 tells us the dragon of old is thrown into the pit along with Azazel at the beginning of the millennium. Interestingly, there is no mention of the other watchers being thrown back either. That shows a direct connection between the dragon and Azazel. Interestingly, Enoch tells us the brunt of the blame for the watchers went to Azazel. But nowhere are we told what terrible things Azazel did. And what's the connection between the dragon and Azazel? Anyway, with that in mind, an earlier chapter discussing the birth of Cain or Quain, he is called and shown to be a Nephal, that is a son of a watcher. That said, just who was this watcher that impregnated Eve? Well, considering the dragon was responsible for deceiving Eve, earning Adam and Eve death, was it Azazel? Seeing the direct connection between Azazel and the dragon, with only those two being thrown back in the pit for the millennium, strongly suggests Azazel is the one that impregnated Eve and launched that evil era of hybrids and giants. Interestingly, a pop rock and roll group in the 70s called Nazareth were mused to perform a song called Star, depicting that very event in shocking detail. But I'm sure they had no idea what they were actually singing.